Thanks for tuning in today to Solid Ground Church. We hope that this is uplifting for you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If we can be a help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now, let's get to today's message. We're, we're going to begin a series today uh, called In the Beginning, and uh, we're going to spend some time in Genesis as a church. We're actually going to be in Genesis, like the next three months, we're going to be in Genesis until Easter. Like, we're going to go through this book, we're going to have a lot of fun. Um, but before we get going too far on that, I have to acknowledge that today we're going to deal with a really, really difficult text. Like really difficult. Uh, and a text that is not without debate and discussion. Um, because here's the thing. Okay? Like we're going to look at the Genesis 1 account of creation. Uh, if it seems to you like I'm a heretic today, let me just put across to you that uh, I'm a literal six-dayer. I need to get that up front because you might be like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to listen to this guy again. That, okay, whatever. But, but that's, that's where I'm at. Uh, here's the thing to, to, to understand, though, going into this. Um, for as long as there has been... Now, longer than there has been a Bible, there have been Christians disagreeing about how to read Genesis 1. Like, longer than we've had a compiled uh, canon of Scripture, so I've gone back and forth on it so many times in my life, uh, there have been men and women who love Jesus, who believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God without error and fully authoritative for every matter of life and practice, who come to this text and have, be- and have gone what's the right way to read this and what's the right way to interpret it? And it's not a faith versus no faith thing. It's a, okay, what do we do with this? And so like throughout church history, like you go back to like, the, I think it's the second century and read the writings of, of origin of Alexandria talking about, I think that Genesis 1 is allegory or, or St. Augustine would be another one. Or if you were to jump way further in future into sort of modern history, you could read like C.S. Lewis would be somebody who believed that Genesis 1 w- was not to be taken literally or most notably now be a scholar named uh, Timothy Keller who's sort of in that camp um and and just across the board it's, it's not don't believe the bible no, no like we believe the bible it's just when it comes to this passage people are asking what's the best way to read it and you might go well how does that debate come up well it, it's interesting actually um so i thought I'd, I'd illustrate it this way how many of you have ever been to like a barnes and noble hands up if you've been to a barnes and noble okay how about, how about a bookstore hands up a bookstore okay how about a library hands up if you've been to a library okay great the educational system has not failed us um <laughs> Uh, so if you were going to a Barnes and Noble, you know, you go in there and you're just greeted by all these books, right? Just books everywhere. It's great. And there's like signs over each section. So you'll see something like, like, like travel over one, cookbooks over another, biographies. I mean, you just, you see all these different categories of books. Now imagine something. Imagine you were to go to a Barnes and Noble one day and the night before some delinquent broke in and they took down all the signs and they shuffled all the books around how would you know what each book was? Because you wouldn't read a travel book the same way that you read a biography. You wouldn't read uh, a biography the same way that you'd read a book on cooking. I mean, how, how would you know what each book was saying? That's a question. You would read it. And, and, and the reason you'd read it, if the cover like didn't clue you in the the reason you would read it is because certain books are not written like other books right so like like a travel book isn't written like a cookbook cookbook isn't written like a biography biography isn't written like a children's book and what have you like the the way that you would tell is by how it's written because different books have different genres and we need to clear something up at the beginning of this because a, a popular american misunderstanding of the bible is that the bible is all one book that's basically like like one long story from beginning to end and it's not the Bible is 66 books under one cover. 
And within those 66 books, again, the, the fully inspired, inerrant word of God, I believe that with all my heart. But among those 66 books, there are different genres. And so some books are historical narrative. And the author expects it to be biographical and for you to read this as something that actually happened. And other books are prophetic literature. And they're about like, pre like predictions of the future and the language is really symbolic and vague and, you know, thus saith the Lord. And other books are poetry. And it's really like fruitful language illustrating God's goodness or God's faithfulness or wrestling through the seasons of life. And other books are, are apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, where, where apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is very symbolic in its language. And so I'll give you an example, you know. Like, even if you're like the most literalist with the Bible that there is, and, and we're probably pretty similar there, but like when you read Revelation, right, and, and it talks about John's vision of Jesus. You remember how, how John describes Jesus in Revelation? Like he's got white flowing hair and there's a sword hanging out of his mouth. Like, right? Like, I don't know a single Christian who believes when they get to heaven, they're going to find Jesus standing there and be like, welcome to the heaven. Like, like no, nobody expects that. Because when we come to that passage, we understand, okay, the sword is symbolic of the word of God that pierces the heart, you know, pierces between soul and spirit. Okay. Now, now, in some books, they even change genre in the middle of them. Like the book of Daniel changes from, from narrative to, to prophetic or apocalyptic, depending on how you read it. And then John, Daniel even changes language at one point. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Which brings us to Genesis. You see, when it comes to Genesis, Genesis changes genres too, from chapter one to chapter two. And... The problem with Genesis 1 is it exists in this weird gray space because it doesn't read like any, really any genre that typically we would read. So, so if you read it as, as, a, like a, as a narrative and you believe, okay, it's telling you about a literal six-day creation, and again, that's, that's where I'm at. It's not where I've always been, but because of some stuff in Exodus, I, I, I treat Genesis 1 as literal. Um, but, but when you come to that, you have to acknowledge that, that the text is doing some weird stuff. To the point where the narrative actually resets in chapter 2. Like it's talking about the creation of the world. But then it like zooms in and the language changes. Like Genesis 1 is full of re repetition. And, and like, you know, so you'll find like there was evening and there was morning. The, like the first day, the second day, right? And over and over again you see like it says God said it was good. God said that it was good. And so it doesn't read like a traditional narrative, literal reading thing would read. But if you say, okay, it's symbolic and it's poetry. Well, it doesn't read like typical Hebrew poetry either. Like there's a certain flow and formula to Hebrew poetry that I'm not going to get into now, but, but like Genesis 1 doesn't fit into that. And so it's in this weird spot. And, and, and unfortunately what happens in the conversation is because, because some people have emphasized Genesis 1 in a particular way, they make it an issue of if, if you can poke a hole in the Genesis 1 account, it means that Christianity falls apart. Only no, it doesn't. Because Christians, for as long as there have been Christians, have been disagreeing about the literality of Genesis 1. And the Christian faith does not rise and fall on a six-day creation. It rises and falls on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know how you can know that the two are not the same in terms of how you should emphasize them? Really easy, simple test. Who is saved by believing in a literal six-day creation? Nobody. Who is saved by believing that Jesus died for their sin and rose from the dead? Everyone. Yeah. And so you might go, okay, well, why, why are you taking so long here? Okay, well, because... Because Genesis 1, no matter the methodology of it, there is a message to it. 
Okay? And what happens, unfortunately, what happens, unfortunately, is because we get so distracted in the details of the story and, and Christians wanting to pick fight with scientists and all this stuff that, that you miss, uh, like, like it, we get so caught in the method that we miss the message. The author of Genesis 1, who I believe to be Moses, was telling us something about God and us that unfortunately we get, pick, and we get nitpicky about all this stuff, we miss it. And so here's the thing from the outset I want us to understand as a group as we go forward, because it's really important that we understand Genesis 1, because it's going to set up the rest of the book. Like everything else that happens in Genesis is a reflection of what God does in Genesis 1. But here's the thing I need us to be unified on, okay? Let's be careful. If you're taking notes, write this down. Let's be careful not to get so caught up in the how that we miss the who. Let me say that again. Let's be careful not to get so caught up in the how, okay? How God did it that we miss the who. That God did it. And, and as we have all this infighting or, or what have you, we don't want to miss the power. And I mean, it is powerful. It is unlike anything around it as Genesis 1 bursts onto the scene of history, okay? We need to not miss what Moses was trying to teach us about God and about us when we get nitpicky about God's creation methodology. And particularly, there are three things that I want us to see today as we dig into Genesis 1. And if I seem confusing and you're like, where is he going with this? Everything I'm going to say is going to fall into one of these three things. And here's what they are. Here's the three things I want to see from Genesis 1. Who God is, because Genesis 1 is going to tell us about God's nature and his character. Who we are, specifically like, like God's intention for us, we're going to see like, like what we are as human beings. And lastly, God's intention for creation. We're going to look at how God created the world in terms of what the world is. And, our, and later on, we'll scratch our heads. Up, well, how did it come to be like it is now? Okay, yeah. But here's the three things that I want us to understand in this prologue of Genesis 1. Who God is, who we are, and God's intention for creation. Okay, now I've taken about 10 minutes to set that up. You ready just to get into the Bible? Okay. Let's read it together. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know something funny? Um, this is a powerful statement that unfortunately, the gravity of it is lost on us. Um, because when Moses, like, like when Moses writes this, he's answering a question that we no longer ask. Like, like when we come to this text, we come to the text with, with the whole of Scripture and God's revelation in front of us. We understand who God is. And so, and so we come to this assuming that God created everything. Because we've been shaped by a, a Judeo-Christian worldview. We, oh, yeah, yeah, God made everything. Okay? But you have to understand something. that When, when Moses has the, the, this, this writing of an account of creation, the world around him is very, very different. And let's understand, like, as, as students of the word, we, one of the things that we talk about is we want to understand what's called author's intended meaning, right? We want to understand who the books were written to because if we can understand that, we have a better chance of understanding what the book is talking about. It's context, context, context. Okay, here's the context for the book of Genesis. Moses is writing to a group of people who were former slaves. They were ancient Near Eastern Jews. And, 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 and the, something that you need to know about the ancient Near East is that they had no shortage of creation stories. Here's these Israelite people who have been raised in Egypt with, with the Egyptian pantheon of, of pagan gods and all this stuff. And that was all they had ever known. And, and so they had heard these different stories. And there are different stories that, that still ex, like exist that archaeologists have found. Like there's Egyptian creation stories, Sumerian, Babylonian. But here's the thing to understand is that when you come to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 doesn't copy them. It stands in like stark contrast to them. 
So for instance, I'll give you an example, okay? Um, one of the most famous creation stories from that time period would be called the Enuma Elish. It's the Babylonian creation story. And the Babylonian creation story begins not with this sort of piece of a God creating everything and there is nothing and God just sort of you know, makes it. Instead, the Enuma Elish begins with the gods at war. Like there's a bunch of gods and they're fighting. And then in the middle of all that fighting, there's, there's the champion god named, named Marduk. And Marduk goes and he fights this goddess who's a big dragon. Her name is Tiamat. And Marduk, like, to defeat her, like, he, he blows really hard into her mouth. And, like, her mouth opens up like a wind tunnel. Just like, ah, all right. And then, and then he shoots an arrow and it goes right through her, like, her, her mouth and out her neck. And it's bloody. Whoa. And then she dies. And he takes the dragon carcass and he lifts it up like a boss and rips it in half. It's kind of awesome. <laughs> And he takes that dragon carcass and he puts one part up and the, the Enuma Elish says, that's where the heavens came from. And he takes the bottom half and he puts it down and the Enuma Elish goes, that's where the earth came from. Me a man. <laughs> We've been like the Hulk Hogan shirt. Um, but Genesis 1 does something completely opposite of this. There's no war at the beginning. There, there is no chaos. It's just quiet. And God creates the heavens and the earth. And Moses is making a very specific point that we would do well to understand. It says that God has no rival. Let me say that God has no rival. There, there, there's, there's nobody that can compare to him. It's not as though he's trying to like maintain his ground against the forces of darkness. No, no, no. Nobody compares to him. It's not God sharing the glory of creation with anyone. He makes it. And he makes it not as a reaction to something. He makes it for, for reasons that are his own and that we'll begin to see. But God has no rival. And you know, I remember the, the first time I, I ever read the Bible for myself. And I inherited this sort of American, weird, watered-down Christianity worldview where I had sort of believed, you know, there's God and there's Satan, right? And like, God's the force of good. Satan's his equal in the force of darkness. But I understand, I, I was blown away. I read the scripture and understand, like, like, no, Satan can't hold a candle to God. Like the level of power between the two, there's not even a comparison. Satan only, only does what he's allowed to do. He's basically like a dog on a chain. If God says no, he yanks him back. Because our God has no rival. And in the beginning, it was not many gods. And in the beginning, it was not chaos. And in the beginning, it was not like sort of this fumbling around. No, God deliberately created the heavens and the earth and only he did it. And that's just the first verse of the Bible. I want to keep going? Okay, what would I have done if you had said no? All right, look. So, <laughs> well, I'm going home now. All right, verse two. Now, the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So you begin to sense this thing, because the Spirit of God, which is, uh, in Hebrew, it, it's, it's the word ruach, right? It basically, like, it's this breath just exuding from the nostrils. And so you've got the Spirit of God just ready to breathe life into creation. Like, here's this, this blank slate, like an artist with a canvas, ready just to paint. There's the Spirit of God ready to begin something. Verse 3, and God said, let there be a light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Verse 6, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault, or the water under 
uh, the vault from the water above it. And it was so, and we can see a repetition here, okay? Basically, all right, God says something and it happened. God spoke and it was, right? Over and over again, we're going to begin to see this in the Genesis story. And here's the thing to understand about that significance, because this is telling us something about who God is that an ancient Israelite would have picked up on that we don't necessarily. God spoke and it was. God said and it was. Here's what they would have heard. That God is a king. That God is a king. Because this is what kings do in their culture. And, and, and isn't it interesting that the way that God created the world and the way that, that he passed on his creation to us, he wants us to see this about himself. Okay, this is what a king would do. They'll go like this, all right, you know, I pronounce it shall be this, and it was so in the land, right? Like, so saith I, Nebuchadnezzar, may the law now be this, and it was. And it's what you find about God as he's creating the world. Let there be this, and there was this. And we look at this, and we go, well, yeah, because, you know, when God speaks something, it happens, and we're right. But understand, there's a royalty to him. He is above us, that, that he is a king to be obeyed and worshiped who should be enthroned. And we see that at the outset here. Let's go on to verse eight. God called the vault sky. Here's some repetition. There was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse nine, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And this next part I want us to focus on. And God saw that it was good. And this is a phrase that's repeated over and over again in, in this creation story. Okay, you find verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, and verse 25. And this phrase here, that we translate where it says like God saw that it was good. What, what, what does good mean? Well, the, the word in the Hebrew there is the Hebrew word tov. And uh, it has, I mean, it's really neat because it's not just like good in the sense of like, oh, that's a good deal or whatever. Like, no, no. It, it's good in the sense that there's like this connotation of beauty to it. Like, it's, it, it's pleasing to the senses. When, when you experience something good, it, it's why later on when you go to the New Testament, the Bible, uh, like, like when Jesus is, is called good, Jesus goes, don't you understand there's nobody good but God alone? Like there's this perfection to it. There's like, I mean, just there, there's, there's nothing like it. There's a flawlessness to it. Like, and so here, here's the thing to understand here, okay? And when it comes down to it, when we experience the world, and, and how many of us, okay, like we, we worship God in it. Because how many of us, okay, like we'll go to the ocean, right? And we'll look at the big sea in front of us. How many of you, okay, have you ever just, you, have you ever just like, I'm living at the beach. I hope I'm not the only one who's on this. Like, like you go to the beach and you just stare at the ocean and you're just like, wow, isn't it beautiful? I'm like, isn't it magnificent? And there's just something about it. It's so, cause it's so much bigger than you that you just realize your size and all of it. And, you just, and there's something in you that just celebrates a little bit. Or you go into the, the forest and you smell like the trees. You're like, wow, this is great. Or, or you go to like, the, I don't know if you've been to the Grand Canyon and you look over this just wide chasm, you know? It's like, wow, what is that? You're celebrating, you're echoing the nature of your creator. There's something stamped on you to appreciate beauty, to appreciate life, to appreciate the majesty of God's creation. So our story goes on. Let me just summarize a little bit so that I don't keep you here all day. So one of the things that we find out is that the way that God creates things, it's, it's in a crescendoing order. So like basically each thing that is created is, is more important than the last in terms of God's priorities. So like we've got the earth and it's just this blank slate. And then like, you know, we'll have like the sun and all this stuff. But then there's like vegetation, you know, and like so this environment is created for life and then there's there's animals, there's lesser animals. And then at the apex of this creation comes humanity. 
like it's sort of building to this moment. And the way that God creates human beings is different than anything else. And the story said, look at this, verse 26, jump on down. Then God said, let us. Let us, a little Trinitarian reference for you right there. We believe in one God who has existed forever in three persons. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. Um, and here we need to stop as well because, because there's been no shortage of debate about what this phrase means, right? So like, what's it mean to be made in the image of God? And some people go, well, it's, it's, what it means to be made in the image of God like, is that you know, human beings, we have a soul, right? Like we, we live after we die and that's what makes us different from animals. And so some people are bummed out. Like, I'm not going to see my dog skip when I go. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know that the Bible teaches one way or the other on animals having souls or not. But, like, is there an eternal element to people? Yeah. Does, is it this text? I'm not sure. Maybe part of it. Other people, they come to this, this passage. and go, What's it mean to be made in the image of God? And they go, well, it's human intelligence. We're smarter than the other created beings, right? Like if I, if I, I'm not good at chess, but if I play a dolphin in chess, I'm going to win. Yeah, that joke was way better than you people reacted. All right, look. Um, <laughs> could be. I mean, not the dolphin part. You almost certainly win. But like the, the, the intelligence part. But what if, and here's a crazy idea. What if we use the context to understand what the verse is saying? Okay, so what's happening? So create them in our image to rule to rule over the creation, to rule over the animals, to rule over the vegetation, to rule over the earth. If God is a great king, if God is a great ruler, and we have been made in the image of God, what this means is we reflect the nature of God to creation to a point uh, that, that it's important to realize to sort of understand what human beings are. Um, that for lack of a better phrase, there's much more importance to us than this, but, but for lack of a better phrase, we, we, be, we would be the middle management of creation. That God would be the owner, we would be the, ma the manager. That the way that he forms, like, like, it's all his, but human beings being made in the image of God, something has been entrusted to us, for, like us to care for it, us to subdue it, like for us to enjoy it. He made it for us to have. And by the way, this phrase, image of God, let's understand something contextually and historically as well, that this phrase wasn't unique to Genesis in the ancient Near East. Then when Moses says this, he's breaking some ground here that, that we miss. You see, like this phrase, image of God, typically it was used to describe a king. And so what kings would do is they would say, all right, I'm, you know, I, I'm Pharaoh, you know, Ramesses, I'm the sun, the moon, the stars, like I'm, I'm the image of God. Okay, so let's say it's the king, the image of God, and, 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 and kings and rulers, they would adopt this title for themselves, and that gave them excuses to do horrible things to people. Because people weren't the image of God. The rest of, uh, the rest of humanity, that they're subject, they weren't the image of God. You had the king up here who, who, who they could do whatever they want because they represented the God on the earth and you had the, little, the, the, the people under it, the peons, so to speak, who could be oppressed, who could be mistreated. But Moses, he goes, no, there's something you need to understand about what you are. You are the image of God. Not a king, every single person. Not just the rich, not just the famous, not just the powerful. No, every single person is important. 
Every single person should be treated with dignity and respect and care. Why? Because every single person has been made in the image of God. Every single person has value. Every single person should be defended and maintained no matter how large, no matter how small. Why? Because people are made in the image of the holy king. It's why. Like, we rule in this creation. It's why, hey, as we'll see the fall next week, it's why all of creation is affected by the fall, not just people. Because people were, were, were placed there to represent and rule for God, and when they rebelled against them, it affected everything that they were supposed to rule. The image of God. And this phrase is so careful, so careful, that, that we would do well to see it. And so our text goes on. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And look at this next part, though. I mean, we're talking about countercultural for that time. Male and female, he created them. <laughs> and you have to understand, um, this is a patriarchal world this text is written into. And Moses' original hearers, when they get to that part, they go, wait, wait, what, female? Because, they, because, because men ruled. And, and women in that time period, tragically as it was, were, were just a little bit more than property to the men around them. You got married, you, you had a wife maybe for love, but really to secure a legitimate heir. You got married to make babies. That, that's what, to many men, that's what women were there for. They were a little bit more than slavery. They had a little bit more prestige than that. But I mean, women were so much second-class citizens in that world. And suddenly here comes the word of God. And he goes, no, 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 no. Hey, brother, brother, brother. She has as much value, worth, and esteem as you do. Your sister has been made in the image of God. She is just as important to God as you are. I mean, can you see how countercultural that is? And by the way, if you're not a, a Bible person, and, and we're glad that you're, you know, you're here, if you approach this with a, with a skepticism, and you're like, I think the Bible is just a bunch of fiction and it's oppressive or whatever, you have a hard time accounting for a text like this. Because nobody in that world was thinking like this. So where did it come from? And as God, as God begins to, to create more, I want to zoom in for a second because here's the other thing I want us to understand is that creation and all the other stories, um, it's very impersonal, but now okay, we've learned about how God's a great king and we've learned about how, now, how human beings have been made in his image to rule, but it's not just about ruling. There's also a, person, like, like a personal relationship to it. So look, if we were to zoom in and see the creation story in more detail in Genesis 2, right, we find like God forming the woman from, from the man's rib, right? Like it's not God speaking or just speaking anymore. He's also like getting his hands dirty, like he's molding things right like look at this in, in genesis 2 um it's, it says this it says now the lord god formed the man from the dust in the ground and breathed into his his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being i mean this language is so personal like have you just thought about the fact like so god forms man he's like breathes right into his nostrils. I mean, just right there. Have you ever thought about like how personal something has to be for you to get your face in it? Like we're pretty selective with that, right? Like I've never been at Hopkins Farm, seen a, a, like a pile of manure and be like, let me just get right in there. And sniff. Like, no, I don't do that. I'm personal about like who I allow in my sphere of face. There's a certain bubble that if you cross it, I'm gonna pop you one in the face. But if somebody's close to me, my wife, my kids, it's different, you know, my son. 
He loves just to grab the sides of my head. And he just push his face right into mine. Like, nose is going in there. Just, Not a head, but I mean, it's just like, I, I, I would do be close to you, you know? <laughs> and I allow it. Because he's mine. And it's this type of personal language that we find with the creation of human beings. Hey, for the one who's here today and you have believed you have no worth. And a lie that was spread to you very early on was that you're just here by accident. No, no, I, I need you to hear something today. This is what the Genesis 1 story would tell you. That you have been created on purpose and for a purpose. Let me say that again. You have been created on purpose and for a purpose. That you are not an accident, that God in his infinite wisdom decided to create you and there's only one of you. And God decided like to give you a mission just as he gives the man and the woman a mission. In the same way, what we find is that he gives you and me a mission as well. You have been created on purpose and for a purpose. And again, this is, guys, I, I need to just, this is just so different from any other ancient Near Eastern creation story. Like in, in those other stories, the, the things that are being spread to people, like Egyptian, Sumerian, Babylonian, like the human beings are basically an afterthought. Like when you find these stories of the creation of human beings in these other religions, what you find is that people are just kind of there because the gods are kind of lazy. Like the gods are tired from doing God stuff. And so they need some servants. And humans are created. I'll give you an example. Back to the Enuma Elish, right? So you've got the war of the gods, and then the gods are all spent. Man, they don't want to get off the couch. And so Marduk comes in and he goes, I got it. We'll make some servants. And so, look at this. I'll, I'll give you an excerpt from here. So here's, here's the creation of human beings. This is what, what Marduk says in the Enuma Elish. I will take blood and fashion bone. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Truly savage man I will create. And why does he do it? He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. Meaning the gods, you know, listen, somebody needs to bring them some chips or something while they watch the game. So, so that's what human beings are in the name of the leash because they, it comes from a worldview of only kings are in the image of God. Only kings are, have, should have any relationship with God and that everybody else should be oppressed, that everybody else doesn't matter as much. And so, of course, you, 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 they construct a creation story that tells them that human beings are lesser and that they exist to serve someone else. And so how do human beings come about, right? Other than the personal language of God breathing in and, and, and his closeness. No, no. So they bound Kingu, who was, who was a, a God enemy, and they imposed on him his punishment and severed his blood vessels. So they tie him up and they slit him open. And out of his blood they fashioned mankind. Babylonians, man, say what you will. Netflix has nothing on them. But let's contrast that with Genesis because you see in Genesis, there's no war of the gods. It's God. He is the unrivaled, unparalleled king. There, there is no diminishing of humanity. In fact, humanity is not an afterthought. They're what all creation is going toward. That basically, like, parents, you're going to get this. Like, you know, when you have things and you have kids, you just have this joy just to give them whatever you, you can, right? That's creation. That God creates this place and it's of, of perfection and beauty. And then he creates it for us to have a relationship with him. Made in his image. Breathe into us. And so, okay, so we're looking at this. Okay, Who is God? He is our great king. He is the sovereign. He is all powerful. Whatever he says happens. But he's not just a ruler. 
There's an aspect of love to him. He wants people to know him, to relate with him. Who are we? Well, we are made in the image of God and trusted this creation to rule over it and reflect the glory and honor of God and to know him. And what is creation? What's God's intention towards it? Look at verse 31. And we'll wrap with this. God saw all that he had made. And it was Hebrew tov meot. Or I'm sorry, meot tov. Uh, is very good. Very good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The sixth day. And maybe, you know, today you would go, okay, yeah, but that's not been my experience. Uh, this description of, of the world being this flawless place, you know, this description of the world uh, being unbroken. When I look here, what I see is disease, suffering, famine, death, oppression. I would say you're absolutely right to see those things. Because creation as we experience it now is not as God created it. And how it got that way, we'll discover next week. It's been broken, but I have good news for you today. As you go through this broken creation, as you make it through this life, understand that you do not have to do it alone. That God looked at the brokenness of creation, that he looked at the suffering, that he looked at the sin. And when, when we had rebelled against God and we had gone our own way, he chose not to leave us to ourselves. So he sent his son Jesus into the world to wipe away the penalty for your sins and mine. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be saved. Hey, so that we could be restored to relationship with him as he created relationship with him to be. Jesus died in our place. And so that you can know that's true. God the Father, present here, just as Jesus was present there. God the Father raised him from the dead. That same spirit that hovered over the surface of the deep breathed life back into his nostrils. So that anyone who calls on Jesus will be saved. So today, if you would say you don't know Jesus, but you'd like to, I'm going to pray with you. And I encourage you just to pray right along with me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Here's what we're going to pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. God, I believe that you sent Jesus to save me. I'm sorry for my sin. But I believe Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. So now, God, I ask you, please come into my life. Change me. Wipe away my past. And let me live for you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. If you decided to follow Jesus today, let us help you take your first steps in faith. Visit us on the web at solidground.church slash first steps. There you'll find free resources and videos to help you take your first steps in your relationship with Jesus. Thanks so much for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next week.